Good morning. Uh, well, uh, before I begin, let me just sort of echo what uh, Chris talked about and prayed there uh, in relation to that Bedini New Testament. Uh, we English speakers in the room uh, will often, maybe maybe for the first time you're hearing this, these we remember these guys, John Wycliffe and William Tyndale, uh, that translated the Bible into the English so that we could read it. Um, well, this picture that you have, I think that'll come up. Well, there's the there's the Bible. I think do we have the picture of the other guy? Yes, there he is. The guy on the left, this guy right here, that's the Bedini Kurdish William Tyndale. Uh, he translated their Bible into their language, into the Bible, into their language. And so he is presenting that Bible, that New Testament to the, uh, I think he's a man of a university. Is that right? DeHook Library. Yeah, even better. DeHook Library. And so uh, they brought some 4,000 copies of that New Testament into that Muslim city. This is a major city. I've been to this city. So I'm talking prayer calls the whole bit. And here they are, an open public ceremony, handing off a New Testament Bible in their language. Can you imagine what God might do with this book? So it's so exciting. Yeah. Let me let me pray for us as we open up our English Bibles to study them that we might know God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for... Uh, uh, our brother that is translated into the Bedini language, the New Testament. We pray for the work of the Old Testament as it goes on. And God, we thank you that you've given us a word in our language. Lord, how generous it is. How often we neglect the Bible that sits right in front of us. That we can open up and read your words. If we want to hear from you and hear your voice, we just have to read the Bible out loud. So God, may we do that. May we think about your word. For it, by the power of your spirit, is the thing that changes us. So may we sit under it now. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you all will allow me, I'd like to begin by asking yet a third question regarding Jesus. You recall two weeks ago, we began by asking the question, uh, who is Jesus? And we looked at the text and saw that Jesus is the sovereign Messiah, the answer to all of God's promises, uh, the one that rules by his word. We saw that two weeks ago. And last week I asked the question, what's he like? said who he is, but what's he like? And we saw seven things. He's so much more than that. We saw, though, that he is not only a sovereign Messiah, but he is powerful. He is a provider. He's transcendent. He's merciful. He's generous. He's compassionate. And he's prayerful. And so now a third question. Are you ready for it? Why did he come? We've seen who he is. We see what he's like. Why did he come? You know, we enter into this Christmas season, and that, after all, is what we're celebrating, right? In the midst of the hurry of the Christmas season, uh, we are, ought to be at least, as Christians, celebrating the birth of Christ. But we need to ask and answer that question, well, why did he come in the first place? We're mindful of that wonderful verse, John three sixteen: For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, right? So God gave, the Father gave the Son. But why did he come? Why did God the Father bring him? Was it just to... Give us a good example. Was it only to make us feel good about ourselves that God loved us enough to to send his son? Or can we even know why he came? Can we even know? Well, to the answer to that is yes, we can know. And what we'll find today is that Jesus did not merely come to provide a good example, nor did he come to illustrate God's love for us, though that is true. Jesus came, as we see from his own words, he came to begin a new world order. The kingdom of heaven. And so what we'll see today is that in Jesus' first coming some 2,000 years ago, he came not to call the good guys, 
He came to call poor and needy guys and gals into the kingdom. And as we will, as he will put it in our passage today, Jesus says he came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Or as I have entitled this sermon, calling all clowns. So if you're a clown, you're welcome. So it's probably not the warm and fuzzy Christmas sermon that you were sort of hoping for, but at least you and I are going to be confronted with the truth about Jesus and about why he came. And we'll see that in three different sections from Luke 5, uh, 17 down to 39. That's on page 861 of those English Bibles that have been translated for us right in front of you. If you don't have a Bible, by the way, take that home with you. It's our gift to you. So Luke is writing. Uh, he's a physician. Luke is himself as a physician. He's writing to this guy named Theophilus, and he's trying to help Theophilus see that we might be certain regarding the things that we have been taught about Jesus. We can be certain, which again reminds us that Jesus and the Father are not interested in a vacuous blind faith. God wants us to know what we believe. And so he's provided that in his word. So here in the first section, verses 17 to 26, we're going to learn more about who Jesus is and what he's capable of, and that will set us up for why he came. So first off, let's consider Luke five seventeen to 20. Uh, we'll see there, let's consider the authority of Jesus again. Luke 5, verse 17. I'm going to read down to verse 20. We'll go a little bit further in a moment. Here we go. On one of those days, as he was teaching, this is Jesus, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed. And they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. And so the celebrity pastor, as it were, Jesus the Christ, continues to be this kind of viral sensation. We see there significantly that the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And he continues to do as we've seen him do a lot of as we've walked through Luke. He's preaching, he's teaching, he's healing. Uh, and lots of people are coming to hear his preaching and teaching. Uh, most notably, we see in verse 17, this group of guys named the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. These guys are now showing up to hear Jesus teach. Now, we're going to see a lot of these guys, these Pharisees, so it's important that you understand who these guys are. So these guys might be the kind of religious right of the day. Very zealous people. They are a group of men who have separated themselves from the regular and historic uh, by, by strictly obeying the historic teaching of the law. By trying to give themselves very strictly to that law. And it's important to note, as Jesus says in Mark 7, and they're giving themselves to the traditions of men in addition to the law. So they're trying to strictly obey the law and these traditions that have been mapped onto the law. They're trying to strictly give themselves from that. So they're kind of separate from the rest of society in that way. And uh, these guys are going to appear as the kind of antagonist to Jesus throughout Luke. Now, it's true. Sometimes these guys, there's a couple times they're actually friendly to Jesus. But here, uh, as is often the case, these are the kind of doubtful and discouraging ministry people to Jesus. That's kind of the ministry they often have. And so many of them, as well as others, have crowded into this house. Uh, and so as a result of that, they, there's a group of guys that can't get into that house to see their friend, their paralyzed buddy, healed. 
And so instead, they get industrious and they figure that they can climb up to the top of a roof and lower their pal down to be healed by Jesus. They've already known, they've seen that Jesus can heal. Now, you should know back in these times, the, the, the houses that they had back then, those roofs would often be used and there would often be stairs on the outside of them that they could go up on to climb up on the roof. That's probably what these guys have done. They've brought their buddy, their paralyzed friend, up on top of that roof and they begin to clear, break through some of the clay roof and lower him down to Jesus. And so we can imagine the kind of awkwardness, right, of Jesus Preaching and teaching. You can imagine us here all of a sudden, right through the roof. Some guys just start to break in. This would be awkward, right? Well, Jesus sees it and he's struck by the incident. Look at verse 20 again. Don't lose sight of those three words. When he saw their faith. When he saw their faith. So we use the word faith a lot in Christian circles and as well we should. We are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. But oftentimes faith is reduced to merely an intellectual assent that Christ is Lord. And that, of course, is true. But just because someone claims to have faith in Christ as Lord does not mean that they're saved by Christ the Lord. Since even the demons believe that Jesus is Lord. The demons believe that Jesus is the Christ. They believe that he lived a sinless life. They believe that he died on the cross, that he rose again on the third day, that he ascends. Jesus and the demons believe all of those things. And yet, of course, they are not saved. And so mere intellectual assent, belief that Jesus is Lord, does not save anyone. But what does, then, you ask? Well, you get some great teaching right here from Luke. Faith, we see, is a heart level or internal trust that is illustrated in external action. Illustrated in external action. The actions, don't lose sight of this, the actions do not save. They illustrate the internal trust. That's what true faith is. So if I say that I have faith in pilots to carry people to cities, how is it I show that faith? By getting on a plane and going to a city on a plane, right? If I say that I have faith that coffee mugs can hold coffee, I show my internal trust by pouring coffee into the mug. Right? That's what it is. So if I say that I have faith in Jesus, it's not just intellectual assent. It's going to require some sort of illustrative action. Internal trust, submission to Jesus that is seen. Jesus saw their faith. And the reason why Luke makes it a point to draw this out is because these guys not only have faith in Jesus and what he could do, they believed in him or they had faith in him in such a way as to provide sacrificial action for others. Faith is something seen, and in particular, it's something easily seen when there is sacrifice to get others before Jesus. So does the Lord see, I ask you today, your faith? Does he see your faith? I know most of you claim to have faith in Christ, but does the Lord see that faith like he does with these friends here? We we know from passages like Hebrews 4.13 that nothing is hidden from the Lord's sight. So the Lord sees all that we do. And so what is it that you would point to to say that there's my faith illustrated? I'm reminded of a friend of mine that I used to disciple many years ago. He showed up one day for a lunch meeting and he had an LSU t-shirt on. And I knew that he was from Florida. I'd known him for a year and a half. And I asked him, I said, why an LSU teacher? And he said, well, I love LSU. And I said, well, I've never heard you talk about LSU before. 
He said, well, yeah, I guess that's true. I said, well, can you name three or four players on the team, on uh, LSU's football team? No. Have you, have you seen a game or gone to a game recently? No. I said, bro, listen, you may say that you love LSU, but the reality is you're, you're not actually a fan, right? And so it is with us in the Christian life. There's so many today that might say that they're fans of Jesus, fans of the gospel. And yet in reality, it's difficult to see. And so what might you point at to show, to to illustrate that your faith in Christ is real? Again, the actions don't say, they just illustrate. There is a kind of faith that Dietrich Bonhoeffer says is built upon cheap grace. And this passage is a great illustration of what it looks like to have true faith. To real faith in the real Jesus. A faith that Jesus can see. A faith that is born of God that results, as we will see, in the forgiveness of sins. And so be careful, friend, that you're not fooling yourself into believing that you're in Christ when you're not. True faith in Jesus is not merely intellectual. It's a heart-level trust that is illustrated in sacrificial actions that can be seen. Well, Jesus sees their faith and he does something that shakes those scribes and Pharisees to the core. He sees their faith and instead of healing the paralyzed man, Jesus goes deeper than that. He forgives the sin of the paralyzed man. That's verse 20. He forgives the sin. So to forgive sin is to remove the debt of the wrong that is owed to God which reveals why the Pharisees and the scribes are so shocked. Take a look at verse 21. This is their response to Jesus saying that he forgives the sin of the paralyzed man. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sin but God alone? So this, guys, this is the same claim, the same charge that will eventually get Jesus executed. These Pharisees correctly... Let me say that again. Correctly understand that only God can forgive. All of our sin is against God ultimately. Therefore, only God can forgive sin. Therefore, these guys are right to conclude that Jesus is acting like God by forgiving sin. They're right about that. But they're incorrect in thinking that it's blasphemy. That's where they're wrong. The reason why they're incorrect is because they do not see Jesus as the angels, as God the Father, as his disciples, and as Jesus himself does. They don't see him that way. They don't see him as Christ the Lord. They think of him as as a lot of people still do today, as nothing more than a prophet or some gifted teacher, maybe some miracle worker. And so because Jesus is not God in their minds, he has no place to forgive sin on God's behalf. That's what they're thinking. Well, Luke goes on to expose this incorrect thinking and loving that the Pharisees are doing, and he exposes it in three ways. In other words, he shows three ways how Jesus is, in fact, God. Now, we've we've received tons of information already that Jesus is God and that he sees himself that way. But Luke gives us even more in this passage. The first comes in verse 22. Look at verse 22. When Jesus perceived their thoughts, that's the Pharisees that they just said, who can forgive sins but God alone. When Jesus perceived their thoughts, note the progression here. He answered them, why do you question me in your hearts? That's good anthropology, by the way. Your thinking is not abstract. It is always connected to your heart. Jesus knows that. 
But Jesus does something that only God can do. Uh, as I've said, God knows the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. And Jesus here sees them all. And Jesus exercises that ability and he speaks to it. He's able to see that. But then he goes on. Look at verse 23. Verse 23 of chapter 5. Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. There's the point of the passage right there, by the way, if you want to circle that. Verse 25, and immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. And amazement seized them all and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. And so the other ways that we can be sure that Jesus does have authority to do what only God can do and forgive sin is by his performing a miracle that would illustrate the deeper reality of forgiveness. That he's offered. So Jesus, we see, heals the paralyzed, the paralyzed man. But look at verse 24. Why did he do it? So important. As I said, that's the point. So that you. So every time I see so that, if you don't, I always circle so that. So, that, so helpful. Therefores and so that. So helpful. So that you may know. See, we can know. That the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. That's why he healed him. He tells the paralytic to stand up and he does. And here we see two other ways which confirm that Jesus is God in the flesh. The first, again, was his knowing the hearts of the Pharisees, speaking to them. Second is the obvious ability to command paralysis and to have it to be healed, and immediately it happens. But even this is not the greatest verification of Jesus' identity as God who can forgive. The greatest illustration is in the title that Jesus references of himself, the Son of Man. Now, this is Jesus' favorite title of himself. He'll use it some 26 times in Luke's 24 chapters. It is a reference to the Old Testament book of Daniel. The Old Testament was a group of books that documented time before the coming of Christ. And here's what the prophet Daniel said in relation to that title, Son of Man. Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. He's prophesying, Daniel's prophesying here of something that's going to happen. He says there, I saw in the night visions... And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. There it is. And he, the son of man, came to the ancient of days. I I believe that's referencing the father. And was presented before him. And to him, to the one that's like a son of man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And so by Jesus taking the name Son of Man, he's claiming to be that one that Daniel prophesied about hundreds of years before. And we know that Jesus is not only because he claims the title for himself, but but because he's evidencing it in his miracles, in his teaching, and more so in his doing something that only God can do, namely forgiving sin. And so the people watch as this paralyzed man stands up. And what do they do when they see this? They glorify God, it says. So it should be with us. That's our response to anyone that God forgives. Glorifying God. Amazement sees them all and they glorify God and were filled with awe. Friends, Jesus is more than an inspirational figure. 
He's more than a prophet. He's more than a nice man that does some nice things that we can all learn from and emulate. As Luke has carefully documented who Jesus is and who he claims to be. The Son of God, the Christ, the Savior, the Son of Man, the Son of God that came as God in the flesh. And he evidences it in this passage by performing a miracle. Why? Show us to show the deeper reality, the more important problem of sinfulness that gives rise to all these other problems. He has the ability, the authority to speak into that and to forgive it. And our response to that is to glorify God, to be in awe of Christ, to do otherwise, friends, or to see Jesus in some other way is to reject Jesus for who his followers and for who Jesus himself said he is. But we need to move on. Having established Jesus' authority as the Son of Man, God, and the flesh who is able to not only heal flesh, but more than that, the authority to forgive sin, the root of sickness, we are now in position to see why he came. Let me set the context for us. Well, let me actually read the passage, then I'll kind of set the context for what he's doing. Take a look at verse 27. After this, it's sort of interesting. We can imagine him coming out of that house, and here's Levi sitting over there in a booth. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. Sort of a strange passage, isn't it? Right? He walks out of the house, all this amazing stuff. Levi's sitting there. Hey, follow me. Yeah, I'm in. Right? He just leaves it all. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So again, let me just sort of set the context of what's going on at this part of Luke. Luke has moved, you remember, from Jesus' baptism back in chapter 3 to his overcoming temptation in the wilderness. That was chapter 4. Now to chapter 5, he's coming into the land, and he's at the end of 4, he's coming into the land preaching and teaching. And here in chapter 5, what's he doing? He's starting to call his disciples. Right? Luke, friends, is mirroring the movement of the true story of the first five books of the Bible, as well as the sixth, the Torah, the Pentateuch, the law. Luke is mirroring the movement of that. In those books, if we were to go back and read the beginning of the Bible and read those first six books of the Bible, we'd see the exact same movement that Luke is doing here. Remember, we saw the exodus, right, through the kind of baptismal waters of the Red Sea into the land of temptation, coming then into the land of Canaan, wherein they're supposed to be teaching and preaching the word, not conforming to the false gods that are there, at which time Joshua then, as we read the text, is then establishing the 12 tribes. That's exactly what happened in those first six books of the Bible. And what we read as we look into those last six, those first six books, what we find is that they failed. Israel failed in all of those things. In some way, shape, or form, they failed. And so the Old Testament was meant to show us a need for a Savior. That's the whole point of the Old Testament. And by the time we get to the end of the Old Testament, that's the first six books, by the time we get to the end of the Old Testament, it's so clear that no matter how much blessing Israel has, they have God's law, they have God's prophets, they have his presence, he's driving out their enemies, even still with all of those blessings, they still fail, showing us the need for a Savior, the need for God to come in and do this himself since we are too weak to do it on our own. 
And that's exactly what Luke is doing. He's showing us that Jesus is that Savior. He is the greater Israel. He is the greater Adam that's coming into the land to set up a true and lasting kingdom. It's what he's doing. Here, Luke in establishing, uh, calling, he's showing us the establishment of the 12 disciples. If you slide down to Luke 6, 12 to uh, 16, you'll see that there. You'll see that there's the 12 disciples. Now, do you think it's just a random number? It just happened to be 12 disciples that he found? No. 12 is associating to those 12 tribes of old. Jesus is setting up a new covenant, a better covenant, a lasting covenant. And Luke wants us to see that. And what's interesting about all of this is who Jesus is calling to be those disciples that is built upon a better covenant. He's calling people that are very unexpected. You remember last week we saw he called a few fishermen. Fishermen. And here we find him calling who? A tax collector. A tax collector. Now, if you've been here for a few weeks, you know we've kind of already engage the reputation of tax collectors. Remember back in chapter 3 when John the baptizer was answering questions about how one bears fruit in keeping with repentance. One of those groups, you remember, was addressing tax collectors. And he says in chapter 3, verse 13, John does, collect no more than you are authorized to do. In other words, tax collectors had the reputation of not doing, not only doing their jobs of collecting taxes. How many of you love when people come to collect your taxes? Don't you love that? Right? Nobody likes that. But nevertheless, they're not just doing that, but they're also doing that for a pagan uh, enemy of Rome that's over them. But even more than that, as we see in Luke 3, we find that it is the reputation of tax collectors to take more than they should. They're greedy. They're thieves. And these are one of the guys that Jesus is building his better kingdom, his better covenant upon. A traitorous, thieving tax collector. Now, if you're wondering why, what's going on here, Levi would have known Jesus was so famous in this region. Levi would have known who Jesus was. He would have seen his miracles. He would have known about his teaching. And so this is not just some random call to a teacher. Levi here is responding to a man he would have known to have been one that possessed authority. And I want you to notice how Levi responds to Jesus' call. Don't lose sight of that. By the way, Levi here is the same guy that we get our Bible, the first book of the New Testament, Matthew. Same guy, Levi, Matthew. Look at how he responds. Look at verse 28. Leaving what? Everything. Say everything. Just to say, yeah, he leaves it all. Every single, he leaves it all. He rose and followed him. And so Christian, this is what we signed up for. This is what you and I signed up for when we trusted Christ. There's no bargains to be made. When we trusted Christ, we took up uh, our submission to his authority over everything. We can't barter with him to hold on to certain privileges of the world and try to live inside of the kingdom at the same time. It just simply does not work. The Bible commands us to not love the world. We leave it all. We give it all up to Jesus. We throw it all, as we said last week, on the table. And so when we chose to follow Jesus, we chose to follow him everywhere he led us, not just where it's convenient, not just where it's easy. And by the way, we do that. We follow him. We are willing to leave it all to follow him. We don't just do that because we have to. We do it because we are glad to do it. Because he's a good savior. Because he's worth it. Because he's beautiful and he's good. Take a look at the joy of Levi in leaving everything. Look at how he responds again in verse 29. He leaves everything and follows Jesus. And his first act is what? To throw a big old party. Right? Right? He's just party. 
Jesus, what he does, right, is he gets all of his buddies, all of his friends, he invites them over and has a party for his new king. For his new king. And he asks all his old co-workers, right, y'all, come on over. I got a new line of work, y'all, and I got a new king. And he's so good. Come on over. I want you to meet him. That's what he does. That's how he responds. He's joyful about leaving everything and following Jesus. He's joyful about it. And how does the religious establishment respond? Look at verse 30. By grumbling. Speaking to the disciples and to Jesus, the Pharisees and their scribes, which are the kind of writers, they say to Jesus, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? So we can imagine the scene here, right? Revelries going on in the background. They show up. They're upset, right? Why do you guys hang out? With all these sinners, all these bad guys. We can imagine Jesus sort of coming up to the fore. Levi, you know, maybe having a nice, not too much drink, but having some drink in the background. Right? The guy's having a good time. He's telling them, talking about Jesus. And Jesus comes up to answer their questions. And these Pharisees are like, why are you guys hanging out with all the riffraff? We can imagine in these Pharisees even thinking, we're the religious guys. You're supposed to be hanging out with us. You claim to be a religious guy. Why are you hanging out with them? And Jesus' response answers the question of the morning. The question, really, of the Christmas season. Why did he come? Well, he tells us right there in verses 31 and 32. Again, Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous. But I've come to call sinners to repentance. Don't you know that Luke, as a physician, loved this illustration? Doctors don't pay visits to people who are well. They come for the sick. Jesus came for people who know they're sick. And we need to be clear about something. Jesus isn't saying that the Pharisees are righteous by grace through faith in Jesus. He's not saying that. He's saying to these guys, you don't think you need me. You think you're already righteous. You think you're already good. You don't think you're sick. Uh, One way of doing is if you kind of wrote in the word self in front of that, it's not there in the Greek, but if you kind of wrote in the word self in front of that, in verse, uh, the word righteous in verse 32, you kind of get the point that Jesus was making. He's saying, in essence, I came not to call the self-righteous, that is the people that think they've performed so well that they don't need uh, any more of God's favor. They think they already have it. I didn't come to call you. No, I came to call the needy people, the sick people, the people that need grace. And know they need grace. That's who I came for. Which explains, by the way, what the first line in the Sermon on the Mount reads. Blessed or happy are those that are poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Friend, if you don't think you need Jesus, then Jesus didn't come for you. But if you are aware of the sickness of your soul, If you are aware that you've been running into dead ends everywhere. If you are aware that no matter how hard you try to be religious or to be secular. And you've found that the conservatives and the liberals often get it wrong about life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. For those that feel constant failure, not just to mankind, but to God. Ultimately, listen, Jesus came for you. Jesus came for you. For those that are exhausted by trying to keep up with the political correctness of our world. And for those of you that are exhausted by trying to perform your own righteousness by Bible studies or even church attendance and giving and doing enough good deeds. 
For those of you that are so confused and tired that you don't know where to turn. Listen, turn from trusting your performance. Own your guilt and bring it to Jesus. That's why he came. That's why he came. Turn from trusting your own performance. Own your guilt. Come to Jesus. He, friend, listen, he's the one that has the authority to forgive. And so he came to call sinners to repentance so that they might be forgiven and be reconciled to God and to one another. He came to call sinners, came to call me and you to turn around and come home. And so, friend, if you're here this morning evaluating the Christian faith, this is the heart of what we believe. This gets to the heart of what we believe. We as Christians do not think that we are better than non-Christians. If you were listening to Chris's prayer a moment ago, I hope that you heard that. We don't think that we're any better than non-Christians. In fact, we're not surprised if we see non-Christians maybe, maybe sometimes or even oftentimes acting better than us. The difference between the true Christian and the non-Christian is how we handle our sin. Our wrongs, our rebellion against God. We don't rationalize our sin. We don't dismiss our sin. We don't blame others for our sin. We own our guilt. You heard Chris doing that a moment ago in the prayer. We own it. We confess it. We agree that we fail and we fail often. We fail our spouses. We fail our neighbors. We fail our coworkers, our family members. We fail our, we fail our fellow church members. And we know that we do this regularly and we deserve God's anger. And so instead of dismissing those sins, instead of trying to pay off those sins by religious deeds, we run to Jesus. We run to Jesus because this goes back to the prior passage. He's the only one that has the authority to forgive us of those sins. And that's why we gather here every Sunday morning. That's why we come in here, because we fail too often. And we come in here, we confess that to God. We confess it to one another and we rejoice in the forgiveness of Christ. Over our sin. We run to Jesus because we know that Jesus came not to call the righteous, but to call sinners to repentance. He came to call the sick. And we are happy to take our sin to him because we know that he has the authority to forgive and the desire to forgive since that's why he came. And we're not fearful to run to him. As we saw last week, he's merciful. He's gracious. He's compassionate. He's generous. So we go to him. And we're glad to go to him and say and confess our sins to the king of kings. In other words, friends, grace is the thing that defines Christians. Grace, performance, literally describes every other worldview on planet Earth. Every single one. From religiosity to secularism. Performance describes all of them. Only grace describes the true Christian. We are forgiven not because of who we are, but because of who Jesus is and what he has done in his coming and his faithful living and in his dying on the cross for our sins and his raising from the grave to show that he can defeat all of our sin. And because he's conquered our sin in the cross and in the resurrection, we know that he's able to forgive us. He's shown us that. We see that he's dealt with our sin once and for all on the cross and in the resurrection. And so we go to him pleading forgiveness and he promises to give it to us. Grace, it's all grace. Jesus performed righteousness, not us. And so in a world that is exhausted, Christians are the one group of people that can rest. We don't have to perform like the left or the right demands. We can rest because Jesus came to call sinners to repentance. And so as a result of that, I call the members of all this church to repent. To repent, to turn around, to turn uh, away from your occasional or habitual sins. 
Turn around, beloved. The path of sin will only lead you to death. Stop playing around with it. Turn around and go to Jesus. Remember, he came for you. He came for you. So go to him in your sin. Find true life and liberty in his love. He has the authority to forgive. He came to forgive. So go to him and plead the merits of his blood. And ask him, plead with him to get you on the right path to true life and everlasting joy in him. Plead with him to do that. This is why he came. This is what we celebrate. This is why we're so happy that he came and that we're even happy that we can be mournful of our sin, but know it will be forgiven. Grace. But before we move on, we need to be clear about something because this passage is often wrongly applied. Right here in Jesus fellowshipping with sinners and tax collectors, it's important to note, friends, that Jesus never condoned or affirmed what is sinful. You got to know that. He never condoned or affirmed what was sinful, nor did Jesus participate in the sin of sinners and tax collectors. Jesus, just, just read his words right in this passage. He came to call sinners to repentance. Again, repentance means to turn around, to go the other direction. Jesus came to call people to a radically different lifestyle than the one they were living. And so, yes, Jesus is noted for regularly being around sinners, but it wasn't to affirm nor to participate in that sin. It was to call them to repentance. That's why he came. And so whether you come from the religious right or the liberal left or the squishy middle, no matter which one of those groups you're in, Jesus came to rescue all those that know they have fallen short of the glory of God and are pleading for mercy to be forgiven. Not just once, but daily. He affirms no sin. He comes to rescue all kinds of people from all kinds of different sin. And so don't let anyone convince you, beloved, that since Jesus is known for being with sinners, that it's okay to affirm or participate in sin. That's simply not the case. The whole point of his coming was to call people to turn around and to live and love differently. And when they did, when that happened, when they turned around and trusted him and submitted to him, People like Levi, like Simon, like the prostitute and the drunkards. What they found is what we read next. Take a look at verse 33. And they said to him. This is the the Pharisees again. The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers. And so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them. Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins and no one after drinking old wine desires new. For, he says, the old is good. You'll see this a lot as we move forward, but here we see the Pharisees are yet again not understanding Jesus for who he is. They think again that he's nothing more than a prophet, a teacher, a miracle worker, as many do still today. And so they accuse him of not fasting like John the baptizer's disciples did. 
And so Jesus takes them back to the question of a couple weeks ago. And so, guys, I want to emphasize, we cannot emphasize this enough. So many theological errors are rooted in people not understanding who Jesus is and what he demands of the world. And so Jesus here understands himself to be who? Look at it, verse 34. He understands himself to be the bridegroom. That's who he understands himself to be. Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? Jesus is with them. Therefore, they need not fast. But a day is going to come when he, the bridegroom, won't be with them. Thought about this yesterday, Mac and Lexi's wedding. I love doing weddings for a thousand reasons, but it's so fun to think about the groom who walks up to get his wife and bring her in. He's the groom. In a wedding ceremony, that's what it's supposed to illustrate. Jesus is the groom that goes to get his white, pure church and bring her home. So Jesus understands himself to be that groom. And so as a result, they don't need to fast. To fast is to abstain more often from food in order to hunger for Christ. That's what fasting is. Abstain more often from food to hunger for Christ. Hunger for the presence of Christ. Our church, for instance, fasts. We have two corporate fasts a year, at least two corporate fasts a year. We do that as a church for about a week. And many of us are fasting more often individually for various reasons at different times. But, but, and we should do that. And we're, the reason why we're doing that, by the way, is because Jesus, note the word, it says when they fast. So it's a when. He is expecting us as Christians to fast. But the point of this passage is not about fasting. The point of this passage is to show us that Jesus is the bridegroom. He's the one that we're waiting for. See, the Pharisees were not carefully looking for the bridegroom because they were so intent on performing their own righteousness so they don't see the groom. They don't see the righteousness that's standing right in front of them. See, these guys are so bought in on following rules, they don't see the one the rules point to. Standing right in front of them. Like so many even today on the religious right, they think that if they obey well enough, they will be made right with God. And they self-righteously judge those that don't fit their system. Meanwhile, Jesus knows that the whole point of the law was, yes, to reveal the character of God, but it was also meant to reveal that we cannot do it. We cannot perform the character of God. That's the whole point, again, of Jesus' coming to call sinners to repentance. Jesus is the greater Israel with the greater covenant. And so as a result, the Pharisees miss the point of the word right there in front of them. And so many do that still today. And after making that point, Jesus ends with three parables. The first references the fact that a new piece of garment is not sewn onto an old one because it will uh, shrink and then tear. The second reference is how you don't put new wine into old wineskins because then, then they'll burst. And then the third one is there in verse 39. You don't drink old age wine and desire the new. You want the old tasty one, as it were, he's saying. And that word desire, don't, move, don't lose sight of that word desire there. That's really important. He's referencing the heart. Desire is down here deep. So there's this interplay that Jesus is doing between the old and the new and our desires for the old and the new. So here's what Jesus is saying in these parables. Here's what he's saying. He's saying that the old doesn't fit with the new and the new doesn't fit with the old. Remember what I said at the beginning. Jesus is the new and better Israel. Remember what Luke is doing. He's showing how he's a better Israel, the true Israel. And so while the new covenant is related to the old covenant of Israel, it is distinct from that covenant. Therefore, if you try and force Jesus into the old covenant like these Pharisees, it won't work. It won't work. It will tear. It will burst. It will taste terrible. But if you desire the old and better wine, as it were, and if you match that old and better wine with the old and better skins, 
It will taste oh so good. If you desire the right piece of garment and match it onto the same, it will fit. In other words, if you see Jesus to have authority to forgive sins as the Son of Man, and if you understand that He came for that purpose to forgive sinners that repent, and if you understand that He's the bridegroom, the one that we're hungering to be with, then your life will fit the right garment. Your wine will fit the right skin. But if you don't, if you try and force Jesus into the old covenant, or listen, even more often today, many of us are not trying to fit Jesus into the old covenant. We have a different problem. We're trying to create a new Jesus and trying to fit him into our own personal Jesus. You try to do that like these Pharisees, it won't work. It will tear, it will burst, it will break. Short version, you have to desire the true Jesus, not the Jesus of your own interpretation. Until you desire him, listen, you will never drink in a tasty life. The true life. You'll remain, you'll remain busted. You'll remain torn. I wonder how many of you here know that since 2014, here in the United States, the life expectancy is steadily decreasing. Y'all seen that? This is the first time in decades this is happening. Scientists attribute this to drug overdoses, to suicides, to alcohol-related diseases and obesity. And at the same time, as all this is happening, we have also a rise of loneliness, depression, and anxiety at epidemic levels, levels we've never seen before. All of this is happening in the same time when we're incredibly wealthy. And secondly, all of this is happening at the same time when the message is, do how you please. Don't let anybody else tell you otherwise. That life and liberty are found in throwing off external calls to religion, especially religious ones, and put on personal autonomy. So the, for the first time in the history of the world, an organization of people have tried to throw off universal truths in favor of living however one please. And the early results on this, as we've sort of tried it out for the last 10, 15 years, the early results are catastrophic. We are more divided, more unhappy, more anxious, more tired than a people have ever been. And here's what's even more interesting about that. There's something else interesting about that. There's one group of people inside of that that those same studies show to be experiencing a level of stability that the rest of the world is not. There's a group of people that have remained more steady than the rest of uh, the population. It's a group of people that the researchers refer to as Convictional Christians. While they have definitely experienced the factors that we've mentioned, they they are experiencing them. They've experienced them at a far lesser rate and they remain more steady than the rest of the culture. And I believe it's because of three things. It's because of those people understand who Jesus is. They understand what he's like and they understand why he came. And as a result... They've submitted their life to him. Like Levi, they've left it all to follow him. Take a look at verse 39 again. Those convictional Christians, they've drank the old wine. The real Jesus. Vintage Jesus. Not the Jesus of our own making. Not the Jesus that we prefer. The real one. The Son of Man who is the bridegroom. 
the one that has authority to forgive sin, the one that has come to call sinners to repentance. So as a result, instead of trying to keep up with the world, we own our mistakes. We daily run to Jesus. And when we come to him like that paralytic, we do whatever it takes to get before him. We do whatever it takes to submit to his goodwill and authority. And when we do, we find hope. We find healing. Most of all, we find forgiveness because our lives are now bent towards not ourselves, but towards Jesus and his people. The one that is worthy. We're defined by him. And once you've tasted the real Jesus, vintage Jesus, not the new Jesus that is a a creation. When we taste him, we say, verse 39, the old is good. I don't want the old cheap stuff, the new stuff. I don't want it. He's the one we were made for. He's the one that heals us, forgives us, and reconciles us back to him and to one another. So we don't have to perform anymore. At least not as a, an attempt to gain an identity. We have it in Jesus who forgives us and reconciles us to him and gives us a new life. And so who is Jesus? He is the son of God, the son of man, the bridegroom, the Messiah. What's he like? He's merciful. He's gracious. He's compassionate. He's forgiving and prayerful. Why did he come? Well, he didn't come to call the righteous. He came to call clowns like me and you. He came to call sinners to repentance. He didn't come to call people that think they're basically good. He came to call people that understand that we are messed up. And we need a savior external to ourselves. He came to call sinners to repentance. He came to call people that knew they needed grace and forgiveness. And so, friend, if that describes you, then, beloved, he came for you. Came for you. So don't try to fit him into other systems. Don't try to fit him into other garments, other skins. Taste the old and vintage Jesus and enjoy him forever. Taste him, follow him like Levi. Love him, leave everything and follow him. Like that paralytic, do what it takes to get before him and then rest in his authority to heal you, to forgive you, and then bring you home. Bring us home because that's why he came. That's why he came. And so let's now pray to him. The one of whom has come to rescue us from ourselves. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, we rejoice that you, the great physician, came to call the sick. And we agree we are sick. We've tried it in a thousand ways to make ourselves approved to you by doing religious stuff or by sort of trying to fit into the world. And both are vacuous. We agree that we have failed. And oh, what joy there is to know that you came to rescue failures to forgive us, and to bring us home with you. Oh God, may we submit. Like Levi, may we leave it all to follow you. May we be like that paralytic and his friends. May we do whatever it takes to get before you. And may we drink of you, vintage Jesus, forever. Amen. Amen.